All right. Hey, good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Um, this uh, this morning, uh, is our, on our fourth Sunday of Advent, we're going to be uh, talking about the promised Messiah. And so before we do that, hey, I just want to reiterate, um, we're really excited about tonight. This is the first year uh, that we have done this, and it's a tradition. You know, we want to start. We know Christmas Eve can often be difficult, so we kind of want to do a Christmas Eve service tonight in hopes that, uh, that you can join with us. I know there's a lot of things you can do. Watching Elf for the 15th time is, is an obvious temptation, which I understand and can relate to. Um, but how much more uh, will it mean to us and to our families to come together and to just take hold of one last opportunity before Christmas to gather uh, with other believers and sing songs to Jesus? So uh, whatever you have going on, man, if it's, you know, I just ask you to, to greatly encourage, I'd encourage you to be here. Uh, looking forward to welcoming some neighbors and guests, even from our neighborhood, who will be with us tonight. And it uh, should be a great evening. So up until today, these last few weeks, we've been talking about the promises of God and how all of the great promises of God, that there will be a promised king. There's a promised king who God promises will come and restore all things. Then we talked about the promised peacemaker, that Isaiah speaks of one who will come and will take swords and and people's swords will be turned into plowshares because they'll no longer be needed. That there will be a great redeemer. And that all of these promises spoke of are ultimately referring to to one great promise, that being Jesus. And so all of these promises we've talked about are ultimately fulfilled in the one great promised Messiah, which is where we're going to be today. The story of this morning, to kind of start off, I just want to remind you, go walk through the story of God's redemptive promise. That God's promise starts in the garden. That Adam and Eve stood in the garden. God created all things as it should be. Adam and Eve lived in a glorious place. They walked daily with God. But then, as you know, they chose to go their own way. Thinking they could be like God, they did that which God told them not to do. And in that moment, darkness entered into the world. And Romans 5.12 gives us some implications about the reality of that darkness. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That everything changed that day. Darkness entered in, that as sin entered in, rebellion against God, so death came with it. And so everybody that would come from Adam and Eve, we would ultimately be born into the same curse and the same tendencies. That we do not have to be taught how to sin. Even the sweetest little baby with which we hold does not have to be taught how to lie and deceive. But one day, as soon as they are physically able, they will do these things. And God, who is both perfectly holy, in his perfect holiness, he's also perfectly just. And so God cannot stand before sin and accept it as okay, that perfect justice is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That sin, in the eyes of a perfectly holy God, who is eternally holy and good, cannot be in his midst. It has to be atoned for. And so God, there in the garden, with his heartbroken children, shares that he, these things too will be made right. He promised that one day he would send one who was going to bring light back into the world, that he would ultimately rescue his children. In Genesis 3:15, he says this to the great enemy, to Satan. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He shall crush your head is a better interpretation. And you shall bruise his heel. That even there in the garden, in the midst of destruction, in the midst of death, 
God assures that one day all wrongs will be made right. And that there would come one who would crush the head of the enemy and he would merely be a a slight bruise upon his heel. And so we go from Adam and Eve to Abraham. And we've talked about Abraham over the last couple months. I want to read with you a story of Abraham that's found in uh, Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'll I'll skip uh, a little chunk here and summarize. But in 22, starting in verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering as one of the mountains on one of the mountains on which I tell you. God comes to Abraham and he says, the sacrifice is required. Take your son up on the mountain and sacrifice him before the Lord. And we see that Abraham doesn't hesitate to obey the will of God. And he goes, and in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son, and he laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. You see, God had made a great promise to Abraham. He had promised Abraham that his offspring would be greater than the stars of the sky. God assured Abraham that he had a plan to redeem the world and that barren Abraham, that this man who had no children, that through them there would be a multitude, God's people. And that through his offspring, he promised Abraham there would come one who would make all things new. He promised Abraham the world would be redeemed. And just as God provided a means to spare Abraham's son, one day, through Abraham's line, God promised that he would provide a way to save all of Abraham's children. That the stars in the sky, the multitude he promised Abraham, this this ram that was given in place of Isaac was just a picture of this greater perfect lamb that would come and be the substitute for all mankind. You see, Jesus would be the better Isaac because he's the ram who would not be spared. There would be no substitute when Jesus was on the cross, but he would fulfill that which God promised in the garden. And Abraham trusted the Lord. He knew that he would make a way, and he continued to believe, and Abraham waited faithfully all of his days. You see, Abraham learned something up on the hill. Abraham feared the Lord. In time of suffering and agony, the greatest you could ever imagine, Abraham's faith was in the Lord. He trusted the great Redeemer more than the overcoming agony and heartache he must have felt. Hebrews 11.8 references Abraham. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So that leads us to, we go from Abraham to Israel. 
Abraham's family grew just as God said they would. The scripture is full of this truth. In Exodus 1-7, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. God's promise was true. Imagine that. And this growing people desired a king, and they asked God to give them one. The prophet Samuel tries to discourage them, fearing that a king could be compromised or overtaken. But they insist, and God would provide. In 1 Samuel 8, 19-20, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there should be a king over us, that we may be like all the other nations, and that our God may judge and go out before us and fight our battles. And initially we see in Scripture that Saul fills this role, but he didn't fill it well. Saul was a mighty man. He was very kingly in appearance, but he was not faithful. He reigns for roughly 30 years, and in the end, we see that he's ultimately not faithful to the Lord at all. And then the Lord provides a king after his own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14. (coughs) But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It was not yet time for the perfect king. So God gave the people a king after his own heart. A young boy named David, who was from Bethlehem. He would be a good king. But the truth is, the world was still dark. And so God made a promise to David. A continuation of the promise he had made to both Eve and Abraham. And in that same book, 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, God makes this promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, David, David was not a perfect king. He was far, far from it. But he was faithful. Note the difference. The difference between those two things has huge implications for us. David was just a fatally flawed king. Made huge, erroneous mistakes. But in the midst of his mistakes, he looked to Jesus. He he became all the more dependent on grace. He was not deserving, but he was faithful. David recognized his own need for a savior more than most. You see, like, his awareness of his deep sinfulness. Like, David, you even find in the Psalms, David, like, questioning God. "Are Are you sure? Why me? His awareness of his sinfulness caused him to boast all the more in God's grace. Christian, it's important for us to get this because our awareness of our brokenness, like actually owning the full depths of it, that's not meant to lead us to despair. But how much bigger is God's grace in light of that? That God might save me in the midst of my deep brokenness. And so I have no reason to hide from such things, but I put it all out on the table because it's my reason for worship. How big is God's grace in light of my brokenness? And this was the heart of David. This is what it meant, a king after my own heart. It's a gift. 
when we're able to repent, acknowledge our sin, because it just points not only our own hearts, but God's people to how big his grace is. God promises that a Savior would come from David's family, that through his offspring the darkness would be overcome with light. And David believed, and he praised God. We go from David to our text we're going to spend a little time on here today. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. (coughs) Kids, man, they get you. Almost three centuries (coughs) after David was made king, a prophet named Isaiah would be instructed to share the great promise with God's people. These people, at the time that Isaiah speaks here, God's people were discouraged. They had waited a long time. There was a lot of excitement during the time of David, but this has come almost three centuries after. And so David was sent to remind, or Isaiah was sent to remind God's people that the light is coming. And so Isaiah 7, 10 through 17, it says this. Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is perhaps the most famous of all of the Old Testament Jesus prophecies. However, to feel the full weight of this text, we have to understand what's happening here. This is not a cheerful Christmas greeting. Okay, this is a, we, we see this text, and it's, you know, we plaster it on a Christmas card, all these things. But this is not a cheerful greeting. This is the Lord giving a fierce rebuke to one who did not recognize who he was. This verse is a fierce rebuke from the worthy Lord Almighty. You see, Ahaz was a king somewhat like Saul. He was kingly, yet not faithful. Unlike David, he was not aware and could not accept his need for the Lord. Because repentance leads to dependence, which leads to strong faith. When we recognize our brokenness, that leads us to recognize our dependence, and that's where faith is built up. And this is why the Bible is so full of broken people. You ever notice all the the key players in this book besides Jesus are like the most broken people you could possibly imagine? Like Jesus didn't go pick an all-star team. And in the Old Testament, God surely did not either. He went, it's like he intentionally sought out the least of these and and raised them up to bring forth the truth of his kingdom. He did that, that his grace might be made that much more of. And so the context of this verse, it's the year 735 B.C. And there are these three small tribal states, Syria, Israel, and Judah. If you were to look up on, look at them on a map, basically from north to south, they'd line up right in a row. <coughs> and further to the northeast of Syria is the nation of Assyria. And so Assyria had become so strong that it was only a matter of time until the Assyrians turned south and attacked the lesser kingdoms of Syria, Israel, and Judah. And so to prepare for the inevitable, the two northern kingdoms of Syria and Israel, they formed an alliance. They figured when the Assyrians attacked, they would fight together and be able to maintain their independence. 
And so to bolster their strength, they came to Judah and asked them to join with them. But the king of Judah, which is King Ahaz, who we're talking about today, he said no. He felt that even together they would be no match for Assyria, and he feared that if the king of Assyria knew that they were all in cahoots, he would slaughter them. So King Ahaz refused. He wouldn't join the coalition. And this so upset the kings of, of Syria and Israel that they then attacked Judah. And that's where <coughs> Isaiah 7-1 starts. It happened in the days of Ahaz, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remali, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to war against it, but they could not prevail against it. The Syrian and Israelite armies, they weren't strong enough. They weren't able to get through the walls of Jerusalem, but they had the city locked in. So Jerusalem, they, they weren't able to get through, but Jerusalem couldn't go anywhere. They were, had, they were on full lockdown. Now, luckily, the, the people of Jerusalem had stored up grain, so they were able to live for some time as long as their water supply stayed intact. But time was certainly running out. How long could they hold? In Isaiah 7-2, it says, The heart of his people are as the trees of the forest. They tremble with the wind. So the people... Uh, behind the walls are beginning to be fearful, knowing that they can't hold out forever. And so one day, King Ahaz went up to the pool of Siloam to check the water supply. At the same time, the Lord spoke to Isaiah and told him to find the king and tell him not to worry. And so in Isaiah 7, 4, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Isaiah found the king and advised him to stay the course. Trust God and be patient. The reminder to Ahaz is like it's, a, it's this call to remember God's promises. Okay, God had surely, he had made clear that a descendant of David would always stay on the throne. So what is Ahaz fearful of? This is, can you notice this theme? That in times of doubt and struggle, there's this constant reminder to remember God's promises. Remember his faithfulness. However, as you and I know, trusting in God is always easier when things are good. When under siege, we often look elsewhere. When things are going our way, it's easy to live by faith. Yet when you are in the thick of it, you often, we often, desire something a little more tangible. A promise doesn't feel like enough when the walls are caving in. A promise just doesn't feel sufficient. I need something I can hold on to. King Ahaz and the people of Judah were surrounded by forces that threatened to destroy them. And contrary to conventional wisdom, Isaiah tells them, stand firm. Do not fear, but stand firm in your faith. Our walls are going to come in and that, like, that's your practical, that's your instruction to me. Don't fear, stand firm. That kind of sounds familiar if you've been here for a while because we recently studied 1 Peter and 1 Peter says the same thing in 5.9 when instructing a group of people how to stand against the enemy. He says, resist him firm in your faith. That it's our faith in Jesus. It's our faith in the truth of God's promises that empowers us to stand firm when the walls crumble around us. Whatever you are dealing with today Stand firm in the knowledge and assurance of God's promises. Ahaz did not do this. He was not a true man of faith. This came out in times of trial. 
This is why scripture talks so much about our faith being tested because it's in seasons of suffering where we find out if our faith is genuine or not. And when our faith proves genuine through seasons of suffering, we have all the more reason to rejoice. Ahaz, his faith was proven to be a false faith. He let the world around him influence his thinking and his strategy. He was motivated politically, and he wouldn't listen to Isaiah. He wouldn't listen to the promises about the great Redeemer. Instead, he looked to every other direction. Scripture tells us that at one point, he even sacrificed sacrificed his own son as a burnt offering to try to water down the the anger of the gods. 2 Kings 16.5 tells us that he did this. And that might sound extreme. When we think, like, man, God's God's giving you these promises and you would go so far that you would sacrifice a, a child? But a checklist is a checklist. And for those outside of Christ, it's a far more tangible option. It's really not that crazy when you think about it. Sacrificing a child for heaven is far more tangible than trusting in God. We'll take a checklist in any form we can get it. If you can give us a, hey, do this, and you get righteousness, well, that's all we want. We just want a box we can check, something we can earn. We'll take it no matter how extreme it is. You know, it sounds extreme that one would sacrifice a child for peace. Yet that's the, the promise of our world to every person who wrestles with such things. I work at, at working at cross lines. I'm constantly, um, you know, we run in a lot. We had 100 families come in just last Friday alone. And all too often, we have the young woman who comes in who's trying to parent a child by herself. There was somebody, you know, obviously who took part in that, but that coward has, has left now that things are hard. And the world, all too often, has given the advice of you could, you could have heaven now, things could be good for you now, if you just sacrifice this child. That could be better for you now. Like, that's tangible. You do this act, you get peace now. You don't have to endure struggling and trial now. That's not a far leap from where, where Ahaz's mind was here. He wanted something tangible he could hold on to. The promise of God was not sufficient. When that didn't work, when his sacrifices didn't work, he appealed to the king of Assyria for help. Isaiah tried all the more to persuade him to stay the course and trust the Lord. And then the Lord himself appeals to Ahaz. And that's what brings us to this wonderful Christmas verse. God basically says to Ahaz, test me, let me show you who I am. In verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. So the Lord says, ask anything. No matter how big it is, I'll show you who I am. And he says, of course, I, won't, I wouldn't test the Lord. And that might sound good. It sounds kind of like what Christ said to Satan. But it's not the same. For Ahaz, he was cowardly. He was afraid to accept the invitation of the Lord. You see, it's never wrong to do what the Lord asks. If the Lord shows up to you and says, test me, then you, you do it. You bring it before him. But Ahaz was too scared of what the answer might be. Or that he may be proven to not be who he thought he himself was. John Trapp, in his commentary on this passage, wrote, 
Haven't we in some way, to some degree, been where Ahaz was? Haven't we rejected the gracious free gifts of God for silly and strange reasons? Here let us each descend and dive into his own conscience to see whether we also have not matched Ahaz in his madness or at least coasted too near upon his unkind usage of the Lord by rejecting his sweet offers of grace and motions of mercy, by sliding his holy sacraments, those signs and seals of the righteousness that is by faith. And so God, in his response to this stubborn king, he delivers to Ahaz the promise of the Messiah that we acknowledge today. Despite Ahaz's unfaithfulness, God's plan would still ring true. A little spoiler alert about God's plan. He's not dependent on you or I. It's a grace that we get to be a part of his work, but his work is not dependent on us. God will have those who are his. And he assures Ahaz that one day a faithful king would come. And he would be far more than a king. The world had seen kings. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. You see, when I say that, when I say God's not dependent on us, that that doesn't lead us to sit back. No. God's promises are true. He says who he, he, he is who he is. The, the majesty of God causes us to lean into his mission all the more. That we're invited in, that this mission will not fail. God will get his and we get to be a part of it. And the wait would be long, 400 years. But God would be faithful and the faithful children of God who would need grace and aid as they waited on the Lord's plan. And Isaiah promises that the child that was to be born would be worth the wait. God will see his people through, and so his people prayed. In Micah 7, 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In Lamentations 3, 25 and 26, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And then that leads us to our closing passage today. Then their waiting ended. And that's what we celebrate this day. That they waited, they trusted, they stood firm on the promises of God. And then their waiting was rewarded. He has come. And the scripture that uh, Rob read for us today was Matthew 1, 18 through 23. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Joseph's a son of David. This is doing what I said I would do. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The promised Messiah is our great hope. 
We are undeserving of such grace, yet the perfect holy God of gods has bestowed it upon us. That the promise he gave to Eve, the promise he gave to Abraham, the promise he gave to David, the promise he spoke through the prophet Isaiah, the promise he assured, terrified Joseph of, is your promise today. In times of struggle, when we fear, when we, when, we, when we question what our life is for, remember the promises of God. I want to just share with you four promises concerning this promised Messiah. Just kind of recapping what we've talked about the last month. Number one, this child would bring light into the world. God will restore all as it is meant to be. Well, like God had a plan in the beginning, and his plan will, be, will, will go through. That the trials of this world do not keep us from seeing what will one day be. God promises that all will be made as it should. Number two, no enemy will stand against him. That many will try. And we've spoke about that. But he will not be overthrown. He will rule on his holy hill. And the governments and authorities will all be subject to his will. I was reminded this week them entering into that period of the, the decade where it's time to get off Facebook for a long time because it's about to get ugly because everybody's up in arms and fearful. Who's in control? Who's going to be in control? God's in control. I just, I, I, like People I respect on both sides, people I know who love Jesus are arguing about an article in a paper. Like God's in control. The governments and authorities, whoever will be, is subject to his will. They can't operate outside of his will. What do we have to fear? And so it's not bad to speak about such things, to have opinions about such things, but why do we speak about things so fearfully? What are you afraid of? Sure, like, if, you're, if, if the Spirit's convicted you, speak it, share it, vote. But what are you afraid of? You have nothing to be afraid of. He is who he said he is. And he will establish a kingdom which will be perfect. He came and he will come again. We can doubt this. We, can, we don't live as a refle- reflection of believing this tr- is true. And It's really foolishness when we look at the history of people just like us. And the promise is always the same. Remember the promises of God over and over and over. Just as those that came before us doubted that. So do we. And we need to be reminded that his promise is no less true to Abraham than it is to us. He will come again. And Luke 12, 40 says, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Like those before us, we are called to wait, and we wait with great hope. He was worth the wait then, and he is worth the wait still. They were waiting, we are waiting still. But as their hope was fulfilled, And ultimately, our hope was fulfilled in that little baby. So what he said will be true once again. And that little baby will come again, but he will not be as a small, infant, weak child in the flesh. It will be God in full righteousness. He will come and he will make just his, like his, his adversaries, it says, will be scattered as a clay pot is broken into little pieces. And those who are his will reign, will be with him and be glorified with him as he reigns perfectly. When he comes back, it won't be like this time. He'll come back and put things back in order and all will be made as it should be. And this is our great hope for us as we wait. 
let us not be like Ahaz. When God tells Ahaz the name of the promised Messiah and its meaning, he told him that intentionally. It was a condemnation to Ahaz. If God is with us, this means that the all-sovereign and all-knowing God has the situation completely in hand, making it only right to rebuke the king's lack of faith in him. He reveals to Ahaz what this, what this son's name means. As a, who, who, are you, who do you think you are? God is with us. Why do we fear if he is with us? I just challenge you to wrestle with this question even this day and find rejoicing in the promised answer during this Christmas season. In him, we need fear not. But apart from him, anything other than fear is a delusion. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you for your goodness, your magnificence. You are surely worthy of our praise, worthy of our lives. <coughs> Lord, anything less than all of us is not sufficient. Holy Spirit, posture our hearts that we might put everything we have before you. That our lives might be lived in service to you. God, forgive us when coming together, when being before you becomes just a, something we, we feel we have to check off a box. Lord, we're all, we're all guilty. And in the midst of our guiltiness, you're, just, you're abundantly good and gracious. You're all the more gracious. Lord, would that lead us to worship? God, help us to acknowledge our sin. Help us to acknowledge uh, just the very depths of it. But Lord, Holy Spirit, by your power, would that not lead us to despair, but would that lead us to celebration? God, your mercy runneth over. It's abundant. We, we, we can't even put our, our minds around it. How, how good is your goodness? How perfect was the perfect lamb that you provided? Much more so than we can understand. But when we seek our whole lives, Lord, would you help us when we seek our whole lives trying to understand it? Lord, help us to revel in it this day. The truth of who you are and what you've done. Lord, your promises are true. Holy Spirit, help our unbelief. That we might know and we might rejoice. Thank you, Lord, that you came. Would we celebrate that? And would you motivate us, encourage us forward as we just revel in the, the fulfillment of your promise? Would our lives, Lord, be lived in a way that anticipates the promises yet to come? I love you. I pray these things in your good name. Amen.